The unemployment for our veterans coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq is twice the national average. It hovers above 20% right now, and that is borderline criminal. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Wednesday, November 11th. That was retired Brigadier General James Spider Marks, you heard at the top of the podcast. We would like to wish a very special Veterans Day to all the current and former members of the military listening right now. Yes, we would. On the podcast today, a stimulating debate between two titans of the American economics establishment for whether or not we should just break up big banks. You'll hear arguments for, you'll hear arguments against, and we hope that you'll come away from today's podcast with a broadened mind. That is actually always our goal. But first, Adam, the Planet Money Indicator. <laughs> have we copyrighted this thing yet? We have not. <laughs> <laughs> being good business journalists, I guess, doesn't mean being good business people, does it? No. But Alex, I do have today's indicator. It is the number 95. Okay. Now, this indicator, 95, it was sent to us by a listener, Janess Crawford from Jersey City, New Jersey. And it is the number of jobs she applied to after she got laid off from her publishing job in December of 2008. 95 job applications in nine months. My goodness. It's brutal. Um, Jeunesse sent us a bunch of other indicators. Out of those 95 job applications she sent out, only 11 of them called her to have an interview. And here's a couple more numbers. Six, that is the number of times she was asked if the job she was applying for wasn't a step down for her. Five, that's the number of times she found out through the grapevine that she'd been passed over. Four, that is the number of times she cried over not being offered the job. 57, number of games of Hexic played. Hexic, have you ever played that? No. Well, then this one won't make any sense to you either. Three, the number of times she got the black pearl while playing Hexic. I'm going to look up Hexic. (laughs) The good news is Janess finally did get a job last week after over nine months of looking. She says she is still in book publishing, but on a different career path. You can read the rest of the indicators she sent us on our blog, npr.org slash money. All right, Alex, let's talk about a subject we visit from time to time here, regulatory reform. How do we fix the broken financial system? Recently, a couple of pretty mainstream people have been discussing an idea that just a year earlier probably would have been seemed pretty radical, limiting the size of financial firms. Paul Volcker, the legendary former head of the Fed here in the United States, recently came out in support of the idea. And Mervyn King, the head of the British Central Bank, also spoke in support of it recently. And we decided to look more deeply at this issue. What are the advantages and disadvantages of taking such a step, of imposing a limit on the size and perhaps the reach of large financial firms to get the government involved in limiting how big a bank can be? So we called up two very smart people, two of our favorite economists who are on different sides of this issue. Simon Johnson of MIT and the Peterson Institute and the former chief economist at the IMF. He's been arguing for a while now that we need to take more aggressive steps to solve our financial system's woes, including breaking up the largest banks. And debating him in favor of allowing banks to get his bigger is Martin Bailey at the Brookings Institution. He was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Clinton administration. So we'll play their conversation. But before we do that, I just wanted just to set it up a little bit. Both Simon and Martin agreed on a number of other steps that should be taken. Banks should have to maintain higher capital ratios, basically larger cushions in case they run into trouble. They should also be subject to greater oversight 
and be monitored to ensure that they're not putting the entire financial system at risk. But Simon started off our conversation by arguing that these measures by themselves just aren't enough. The key thing, Alex, is make the banks small enough so they can fail. And, and the, the interesting point in comparison is, of course, in the United States, we have the FDIC, which is world class at taking over banks and resolving distressed, distressed banks. Uh, people come from around the world to study how the FDIC does it and to try and make their agencies for intervention um, and, and taking over failing banks uh, as good as the FDIC. But the FDIC cannot deal with the biggest banks. So to be very specific about size and to put some numbers on the table, uh, let's consider CIT Group, which is a lender uh, to uh, small and medium-sized businesses around the country. Uh, it was in trouble, serious trouble, uh, three or four months ago. It had at that point total assets uh, balance sheet of $80 billion, $80 billion with a B, okay? Right. And they are in the, in the, somewhere between bankruptcy and creditor renegotiation. They got a, a, a big loan from, um, from Carl Icahn, actually, to, so they can run the business um, in, and do what's called a prepackaged bankruptcy. This is how the system is supposed to work. You need – if you have – if you try to run capitalism, any version of capitalism in which some players are – too big to fail. They have a get-out-of-jail-free card. They can do whatever they want, and they say, oh, sorry, but you need to give us some more taxpayer money. You don't want us to fall into that kind of trap where the too-big-to-fail guys become so powerful that they run the system for you, but mostly for their own interests. So, 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 Martin, what is the problem? So let's say we have, like, you know, I, I'm imagining sort of like a, one of those amusement park rides where there's a sign that says, if you are if you are if you are shorter than me, you are not allowed to ride on this ride. Why not just have you know sort of a, a sign of CIT Bank and say to all the banks, if you are if you are larger than me, you are not allowed to play in in uh, American capitalism. We have to break you up. What's what's wrong with that? Um, I think there are substantial gains to uh, having a certain number of large banks. We we are part of a global economy, and uh, large corporations operate around the world, and they need banks that can have a global presence and and serve their needs. So I think there would be a lot of uh, efficiency loss. Let me let me let me at, push back on that efficiency argument just for a second, just because I I, I hear that I hear that argument made a lot, and I, and I don't quite understand it. Basically, it seems like if you follow that argument to its logical conclusion, in order to have a company like GE that gives us all sorts of, you know, I guess, benefits of um, scale and um, international, you know, reach, uh, in order to have a GE, you need a Citigroup. And I'm, I, I just don't know, is there, is there proof of that? Well, um, Citigroup was certainly one that, that did not do well in this situation, but reasonably well-managed banks like, like J.P. Morgan, uh, which have a global presence and provide services to American and other uh, foreign companies uh, around the world. So I think that the, there is a fair amount of advantage to size. And after all, let's not forget but, 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 that the financial sector has been one of our more successful. It exported $58 billion in 2007 and had a very large trade surplus. So I don't think we want to put... Uh, U.S. financial institutions at a competitive disadvantage relative to European uh, institutions, which may well be uh, quite a bit larger if, Wait. if uh, Simon has his way. It, it exported how much in 2007? Uh, the U.S. financial sector exported $58 billion in, in 2007. Yeah, but how much global wealth did it destroy in 2008? I mean, that's, you know, compared to the trillions that have been, that have been evaporated. I mean, that doesn't seem like a very good trade-off. Um, 
it, it was providing them a lot of what it was providing was services to um, uh, to the global economy, and I think it will continue to do that. Uh, I mean, remember that what caused a lot of this was a U.S. housing bubble and a U.S. housing crisis. So there's, there were a lot of uh, a lot of people that carry some of the blame uh, for doing this. Uh, I still think it's important that we we not. Um, create a U.S. financial sector that's un- uncompetitive, that would be a mistake. Simon, what do you say about that, the, the, the efficiency argument and, and then the, the uncompetitive argument? Well, let me take the efficiency uh, argument first. You know, this is something that's been studied quite carefully by, by a lot of people. And the finding is that when you get to the sort of size we're talking about, go, say going from should you get bigger than CIT group, bigger than this 80 billion or let's call it 100 billion, should you be able to go to 500 billion or 2 trillion? And, of course, uh, the biggest bank at the time of the crisis was Citi, about two point, probably about 2.5 trillion if you include all the off-balance sheet items they had. Um, the answer is no one can find those efficiency gains, um, either in terms of the, the bank's productivity or in terms of the effects on, on, on the broader economy. I mean, it, perhaps if we keep looking, you might find a little bit. But as you said, the key issue is how much, are we, how much is, uh, does the size get us relative to, to what we lose? And if you go talk to people in the corporate world, which, which I've done since, since these issues came up, ask them, you know, what's the big advantage of, of working with a colossal bank? Uh, you can break it down into three categories. Uh, the first is in terms of raising capital. Is there a big advantage to working with a single large bank? And, and the response of the corporate sector is, well, not really, because we syndicate most of our loans to, now, to, to on, distribute them. Let me just break that down for people. So what you're, basically what you're saying is that they don't, they don't just go to a big bank and borrow. They, they do a bond issue that goes to the market, and then that's how they raise their, their money. It's not going to – they're not going to a specific institution for that money. They may have a lead advisor mm-hmm. or a couple of lead advisors. But they then bring in other people, and so you end up with with a syndicate, with with a collection of of, of lenders who either put their own balance sheet in, lend you money. But much much more common, they're they're facilitate, they're finding other people, mutual funds or pension funds, who are going to buy uh, your bond issue. So this is handled by a lot of people around the world, and different banks are good at this in different countries. So uh, if you want to do it, you know, have part of this issue go to Europe, you bring in some European banks because they have the relationships with with the European lenders. So that's the first thing in terms of capital raising. You know, you use a lot of a lot of people anyway. In terms of cash handling, managing you know, foreign exchange transactions and managing your accounts around the world, I haven't yet found a big company, maybe there is one out there, haven't yet found a big company out there that works just with one bank. In fact, most of the big companies you talk to say, well, that's probably not a good idea to work with just one bank because then they would take advantage of us. They would charge us higher prices. We like to play the banks against each other. Now, the one place where the big companies do like to work with big banks is something you've got to be a little careful of, which is in derivatives. So there's some big companies say, oh, I want to do my, all my transactions with JP Morgan. I want to do a single billion dollar uh, hedge in of oil prices, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense because if you give me the choice of doing a $1 billion transaction with a bank that's too big to fail and therefore has no counterparty risk, right? So therefore, <laughs> I know that hedge is going to hold because the U.S. government stands behind J.P. Morgan at this point implicitly. That's attractive and that's going to have attractive pricing relative to doing five or ten smaller contracts, doing those through the market, doing those through hedge funds or whoever whoever's a player at, at that smaller size. But that is a subsidy that you're providing to your corporate sector I see. So well, I, first of all, I think it's just wrong. Uh, if you talk to corporations, they will tell you that they get a lot of benefit from being able to get a range of services worldwide from a large multinational bank. I think economic growth is slow uh, if you have overregulation in any sector, including in the financial sector, or if you have the wrong kind of regulation. I've spent a lot of time uh, studying not financial sectors but uh, other sectors. And we find that that misplaced uh, regulation, often driven by populist sentiment, 
uh, often stands in the way of economic growth and, and keeps people poor. I mean, uh, China, after all, uh, after it threw off its uh, – became more of a, a market economy, has lifted millions of people out of poverty. So economic growth is the thing that I think in the end helps uh, poor people. So to turn this as a populist discussion I don't think is, is right. It it's clearly has been very unfair that uh, you know banks have been bailed out in the way they have. But I think that the average American benefits from having uh, restored the financial sector to a great extent and returned to economic uh, growth. Right. So, so, but, but, so basically the, the, the heart of that argument is that if, if we limit size, what we're doing is we're slowing down the economy. We're making it you're, – you're adding – you're tacking a couple of weeks on to an out-of-work person's job search. You are slowing job creation. In other words, if we, if we do if – the, the danger is if we limit these bank sizes, we do it poorly – it's going to take longer for out-of-work people to get jobs. It's going to take longer. Well, the, We're not yes. going to, our wages aren't going to rise as fast. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about economic growth, right? I, I mean, the deregulation movement in the United States, I think, contributed to the increase in productivity, which helped a lot of people. didn't help everybody, but it helped a lot of people. Now, the financial sector is only one sector. It's not going to be easy to track down, well, if we do this wrong policy, then so many people will, will uh, increase the amount of uh, unemployment. It's be very hard to, to identify in that way. But I think as a general uh, philosophy, you, you want a sector to be regulated in a way that allows it to innovate and grow and be efficient and, and uh, set it, its rules be set partly by the market, but also when taxpayers have a stake uh, to regulate against risk in the right way. And I, I just don't think this is the right way to do it. It's not limiting size. It's just not the right way to do it. I do think we need to regulate against risk. Mm-hmm. Can I can I yeah, come in? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so to be very clear, I, I'm not a populist. I'm, right. I'm a technocrat. I was the chief economist of the IMF. They have a, actually a test for screening out populists. So you don't get that job, okay? <laughs> and I am speaking on behalf of a, a lot of people I've worked with uh, on and around banking issues and lots of emerging market crises. That's what I, I work on crises for 20 years, okay? And, and that's the perspective uh, that, that I'm bringing to this. Um, I couldn't agree more with Martin on the general point about uh, deregulation being helpful and the point that, you know, Inappropriate barriers put up by governments are a big block to development in many situations around the world. But remember, banking is different. Banking is much more dangerous than, than other um, sectors. And that's because the consequences of bank failure, because that's because you need credit in everything you do throughout the economy, so it's pervasive. And the consequences of bank failure are much bigger, potentially, in terms of the macroeconomics and in terms of, of, of how, people, how people get hammered. Um, and, and deregulating banks is not, I'm afraid... The same thing as deregulating airlines. I like cheap airline tickets. I like the consequences of, of deregulating airlines, although it obviously came with some consequences for the wages of people who worked in the airline industry. But that's good for me as a consumer. From a social point of view, how do we evaluate the deregulation of the, of the financial system, both in this country and, and around the world that we've had over the past 20 years? Well, I'm afraid it's come with some benefits and some huge costs. We are just now recognizing and realizing those costs. And let's speak directly to the issue of productivity, which, which, which Martin is, is, is a world uh, authority. As, he, as, he, as I'm, I'm sure he, he will confirm, this is the standard government data, productivity growth in the U.S. actually slowed down over the past 10 years compared to what it was previously. So in other words, if we took our bank system back to the 
the mid 1990s or 1998, pick a year. Um, what's the evidence that 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 kind of that the kind of limitations we had there that worked at that point before the latest wave of crazy deregulation um, that that would uh, be associated with much lower growth and, and less prosperity for the people at the bottom of the income um, distribution who are absolutely getting hammered right now? Goldman Sachs in 1998 uh, was a 200 billion dollar bank, 200 billion dollars assets, which is about 270 billion in today's money, and now it's about four times bigger. Now, was Goldman elected? Less good bank um, was the, was the world economy <laughs> struggling <laughs> because Goldman was a small and, and other banks also Lehman was was much smaller in '98 than 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 when it collapsed uh, by about uh, three times and the answer is no and the answer you know the point <laughs> the, the important point to focus on just from a fact basis is all of our all of our big banks in this country uh, became much bigger over the past ten years and and over the past uh, twenty years and that did not <laughs> transform improve uh, productivity in any way that anyone can measure. Martin? Well, yeah. when, when the banks, when we opened up the banking system in the, in the 1980s uh, and we allowed competition to take place, there was a huge increase in, in bank productivity. And we'd ha- we did have a rather crazy regulatory structure with limits on interest rates and local, you could ha- only operate in a single uh, state, uh, so that there was tremendous uh, productivity growth that took place at that time. Now, I, I'd like to agree with with uh, Simon and say over the last 10 years, um, the, people applied the principle of deregulation to the banking system. It, it, it's not that they deregulated that much more. It's that the regulators really stopped paying attention to the right things. Uh, I think it's much more a question of what's the right way to deal with with reducing the risk of the system. And I think that's through reform of regulation and through syst- um, approaches like higher capital um, standards and, and uh, higher regulatory standards for large banks. I think that's much better than putting limits on how large something could be or trying to break something up. When I think about the... the, the um the breaking up the big banks argument. There's, there's two. There's, there's. It sort of falls into two. There's, two, there's two big question marks in my mind. The first question mark is, does it, does it cause more? Does it hurt the economy more than it helps the economy? So say it does get rid of. So say it does sort of take risk out of the economy. Does it also take growth? Does it take productivity out of the economy? I feel like we've dealt with that a little bit. We've talked back and forth, and 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 you've each laid out that that. But then the second big question mark is is one of um, uh, just logistics and, 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 and uh, you know, efficacy. How do you do it? And that seems like almost a bigger question. It's just sort of like it seems like a, a logistical nightmare. How do you – you can't just sort of say everybody, everybody bigger than CIT, line up and we're going to break you up. I mean you're, you're going to have to write this into legislation. It seems like that once you start writing into legislation, there's going to be all sorts of ways it's going to be gamed. It seems like how can you actually – the logistics of it just seem so daunting as to make it basically impossible. What, what do you, how, do you, how do you respond to that? Um, well, I actually don't think it's that hard. Now, in terms of the logistics of how you do it, there's obviously a variety of ways. And um, the one that I prefer is, is to put a tax, um, a big tax, 
uh, based on size. And this is, uh, if you follow the debate around the G20 and, and the sort of back and forth between uh, Mr. Geithner and Gordon Brown and uh, Dominic Strauss-Kahn at the IMF, there's a lot of positioning around the IMF's current work, which is designing, they're calling it a tax on excessive risk-taking or risk-taking that's big relative to the system. That, that's, a, that's, that's a good sort of phraseology. But in reality, what is excessive risk-taking? How are they going to manage? How are they going to operationalize risk-taking that's big relative to the system? It's going to be size. Because, it, you know, if you, and, if you and your brother go to Las Vegas and lose all your money, uh, that's a shame, but it doesn't bring down the financial system. If Citigroup goes out and once again, like it does every decade, blows up, that's a big risk relative to the system. That's what's going to be taxed. And that's if you put that tax in at a steep enough progressive based on size and it's steep enough, uh, that will give the, these uh, big firms, uh, big banks, a big incentive to break themselves up. So you're not talking about having a having a rule where the government sort of says, you know, comes and raids the raids city group offices and says, okay, okay, guys, everybody, everybody with odd numbers birthdays, you're in the new bank, and everybody. I mean, you're not talking about that, right? You're <laughs> I would also support that, Alex. Let me be clear. I'll look. I'll take what I can get. It's got to get done. Mm-hmm. It seems like actually, Simon, uh, you're getting fairly close to the position that that the Treasury and that I were supporting, which is that you do demand different uh, either capital standards or some some form of because higher capital standards are a tax on on the banks so for risky activities and for the largest most significant banks uh, they probably do have to have higher capital standards or more close supervision of their portfolio, and that is effectively a tax. I don't think it wants to be a punitive tax, um, but it is effectively a tax. So in that sense, you're getting very close to what the Treasury and, and what I support and what I think uh, a lot of folks in the in the House and Senate uh, support. Um, you know, logistically trying to break them up, I think, would be a nightmare, and we do have constitutional provisions against takings. It's You get it into an awful long legal nightmare to try to do that. So I think I think that would not be the right way to go. Keep in mind also that we are still in a very fragile state. So something that really rocks the boat uh, in terms of the financial sector is surely not a good thing to do when we're only just teetering on the edge of recovery uh, for the overall economy. <clears throat> All right. Well, that was quite a uh, Mothra versus Godzilla of economic battles, don't you think? It sure was. <laughs> right. As, if Mothra and Godzilla used capital reserve requirements as a main fighting tool. Instead of flames coming out of their mouths. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and basically, Martin's point, which I just want to make sure that we're emphasizing here, is let's just let's not do something radical if we don't need to. Why risk our economic recovery and why risk the possible unintended consequences of bad regulation if, if we don't have to? We have these other measures. They'll work. Let's just do that. Simon, of course, believes that the risks to breaking up the big banks aren't that big and that the risks of not taking the step are actually much larger. And it's important to point out that you do hear Simon talking about this idea of breaking up the big banks a lot. You hear it a lot on our podcast. You know, he he's a very present figure in our national debate. And I think, you know, we love Simon, but he, I think he would agree, represents a minority viewpoint. There are are other voices who've come out in support of his idea, but it's very far from the consensus or mainstream view. I think, Alex, the reason you and I find it so interesting is not necessarily we agree or disagree, but it just brings up really interesting issues about what is the nature of banking, what is the nature of our financial system, and we love talking to Simon about those ideas. Exactly. I think that wraps it up for us today. Email us your thoughts, pictures, comments to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.